Hey, we're ending this series that we've been in for the last couple months this weekend with a message out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your phone, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, this series is called Christianity Over Culture, and we've been uh, being reminded through this letter written to a church in um, probably around 55 AD um, after Jesus had left and started his church and the apostle Paul was doing his missionary work and he started this church in Corinth. And uh, we think about five years in, he's writing them this letter and they've got some issues, they've got some struggles. And one of the things we're finding is that our struggles and the things we wrestle with look a lot like the struggles this church had. And that's why it's helpful to us uh, to to, um, press into this and learn from it because the messages for this early church in Corinth really apply to us today very well and, uh, and so very helpful to us. And so we're trying to learn through this how to be a church that's more influenced by Jesus and the culture he wants us to become than by the culture around us. And uh, sometimes, if you're like me, that's a struggle because the world I live in and the culture I live in affects me a lot. And so um, struggling to live for Jesus and live the way he wants me to is not easy. And so this letter is really designed for that and we're, we're working at that. And this week, as we end this series, we're focused on chapter 15, which the big idea in chapter 15 is our eternal hope And we're being reminded of the core of the gospel and what really is at the center of our belief and our faith and our salvation. And uh, we're being encouraged to hold on to that. Um, Next weekend, we'll be down at the uh, Scottsbluff County Fairgrounds in Mitchell. And uh, we're having a service down there. It'll be a great service. We've got um, a lot going on testimonies, baptism, and so you'll want to be there. But the reason we really do it is so you have an opportunity maybe to invite somebody that doesn't go to church and maybe maybe struggles a little bit to come in the doors of a church. might be a little easier to go to the fairgrounds, and so that's why we do it. So I encourage you to invite somebody this week and um, try to bring somebody along with you next Sunday for that service. But uh, as we start this message, as we get into this chapter, I got a question for you, and that is... Uh, Do you have hope? Do you have hope? And if you do have hope, what is your hope in? I mean, hope is really that confident um, belief in a positive future, right? That's That's what hope is. And hope is so important to us. It's essential for human beings to thrive and to do well in life. We've got to have hope. Uh, Oftentimes, suicide comes as a result of a loss of hope. And not a lot of human beings get that hopeless, but a lot of us will struggle at some point with anxiety, with depression, with fear related to the future or to our situation or what's going to happen. And so uh, it can be about with our families, our marriages, uh, everything. And so having hope, maintaining hope is very important. Studies have shown that hope is linked with health, quality of life, self-esteem, a sense of purpose, an essential, hope's an essential factor in young people for developing maturity and resilience, right? Not everything's going to go right in life. Not everything's going to work the way we want it to. And so for us to bounce back and kind of keep going, we've got to have hope. And so hope's so essential for us. And, and uh, of course, the hope that's going to be talked about in this chapter is the hope, the primary hope that we're to have, um, the gospel is going to be presented in this chapter, and we're going to be reminded of the faith that we have and what it is we're called into. And, uh, and so um, what's at the center of our faith, what's at the center of Christianity, 
is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, um, in America, uh, we are a product of the Enlightenment, which occurred um, uh, really more in Europe, but it's affected Western culture. And with the Enlightenment uh, came things like the elevation of a value of human happiness. I should be happy. We should be happy as a human being. That's important. It got put at the top of what we value. Um, we started to discern and discover and decide on what was true based on our five senses, based on human reason. And those things are valuable, but, um, but our five senses cannot detect for us everything that is real and true, right? And also what came along with the Enlightenment was the scientific kind of theory and discovery. And though it didn't start this way, it became over time atheistic so that really most of the scientific disciplines and thought process and study uh, are void of any belief in God. And they really discourage that within them. There are people of faith, right, in those practices. But, but we have seen over time how this has affected us. And the crazy thing is that as Christians and as people who are, are carrying the message of the gospel, what's at the middle of the gospel, what's at the core of it, is this miracle, this unbelievable, unbelievable thing that occurred, which is that Jesus, God's son, came from heaven, right, and took on a body and walked among us. Well, that's a supernatural occurrence. That's not something that we see happen. There's people that claim to be God, and we think they're crazy, right? But here's Jesus walking the earth, and yet he's demonstrating things that prove, of course, that what he's saying is true. Um, he does miracles. He heals people. Things that don't happen every day that we don't see all the time. And the people around him that were watching him, some of them were becoming convinced, wow, he's different. There's something different here. And then he would do something that only God can do. He would forgive sins. And uh, these things were amazing. And, and a lot of people, some people denied them and didn't believe in him. Others were drawn to him. But, but then Jesus went to the cross and died. And his death was profound. Of course, his followers were discouraged. They thought the movement he had started was over. And yet, according to God's word, Jesus was buried in a tomb. And three days later, something incredible happened. Something almost unbelievable happened. He rose from the dead. And so the resurrection is at the core of our belief. Our salvation rides on the resurrection. It's, it's what we must come to a place of believing if we're going to trust in Jesus for salvation. If we're going to trust him to save our sins. Now, the Enlightenment has discouraged the belief in the supernatural. It's discouraged our belief in the spiritual things. And yet we've been learning through this series uh, that we are a spiritual people. Of all the people in the world, we are to be in touch with spiritual reality. We're to sense and know the Holy Spirit is present in our lives. He's empowering us. We're to work actively with him in the participation of the things we do, the giftings that we're given. We talked about um, uh, a couple weeks ago and being able to serve. And, and so we're to be in touch with the supernatural. And yet, um, Mary, my wife, who leads uh, some ministries here, and women's ministries, one of them, she's uh, leading some of her ladies through a gospel project uh, a, a study. And it listed like nine core beliefs that are core to the Christian faith. And they said in the teaching of it that about 9% of people that sit in churches, right? So these are people that come to church are Christian. About 9% hold to all of those core beliefs. And so we know that our struggle is real. 
And, uh, and then I told my wife, well, how many of those people do you think held to all those in the church in Corinth <laughs> in the very beginning? And it was a struggle for them too. And so the good news is that we struggle with this, but it's not a new struggle. Uh, the folks in Corinth, these early believers, they had the same struggles. In fact, in the book of Acts, which is the account of the spread of the church, the apostle Paul in chapter 23 of verse Acts, he gets in front of some leaders of Israel. One of them was a a Roman governor, Festus, and the other was a a, a Jewish king of Israel, uh, King Agrippa. He was a Herod Agrippa. But he talks to both of them about what he knows is true about this gospel. And he shares with them the realities uh, of the resurrection. And, and that Jesus is really the son of God and that he came from heaven, as he said, to earth. And, and, and they challenge him. They're, they're like, Paul, uh, you're crazy, man. You believe in a resurrection? Like, something's wrong with you. Um, you've been smoking too much of the wacky tobacco, you know? You heard of that? Wacky tobacco. Okay, anyway. They thought he was crazy. Like you're, you and I don't have this. It's not a new issue, right? To struggle and to preach this message and to say no. But, but look, you've, you've got to examine what happened. And so here's a beautiful thing. Many people believe today, critics of Christianity and of faith, in order to have faith, you just got to turn off your brain. You got to quit thinking. You just got to take a leap of faith. And the good news is the New Testament was written for us actually so that we didn't need to turn off our brain. In fact, the apostle Paul today to the church in Corinth, he's not going to ask them to turn off their brain, to suspend reality. He's going to say, look, examine the evidence because it turns out that the resurrection, yes, hard to believe, should be hard to believe, should be hard to have confidence in. The truth is there was an amazing amount of evidence that Jesus rose, and the Apostle Paul is going to present this to the church in Corinth. So follow along as we start reading in 1 Corinthians. We're going to read the whole chapter today, so we're reading quite a bit of scripture, so hang in there, but it's good, and, uh, and I want you to get all of it. Chapter, one, or chapter 15, verse 1. It says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news, that's the same, that's what the word gospel means, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, And you stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you. If you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Encouraging them to stand strong, to stand firm in the gospel, the good news that he preached to them. Now he's going to tell them, remind them what that gospel was. What it was that saved them. Verse 3 says, I passed on to you, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here's what it is. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said. Old Testament prophesied about this, right? And Christ fulfilled it. Verse four, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter Now, remember, we learned earlier, I think in chapter three, that Peter had preached to the church in Corinth. He had helped to lead them. He'd been there, present, leading them, teaching them. Say new Peter. So he's reminding them, hey, Peter, the guy you know, he saw Jesus after he he rose from the dead. And then by the 12, he says, so all the 12 saw him. 
He's building the evidence here. Verse 6, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now that particular bit of evidence is still one of the most difficult for skeptics of Jesus and of Christianity and of the faith and the resurrection. This verse presents some of the most powerful evidence and the most difficult to dismiss, right? One of the things that uh, people have tried to say, well, it was a hallucination, they were hallucinating. And so they all thought they saw Jesus. Well, the interesting thing about that is that there's never been a recorded account of two people, not two people, having the same hallucinating, the same thing, seeing the same thing, right, at one time. Never happened. So 500 becomes overwhelming. Can't, you can't dismiss it. All of them see Jesus, they recognize him. Uh, verse 7, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Oh, by the way, he says of those 500, some of them are still alive. Man, go talk to them. Go check it out. Um, don't, if you don't believe me, right? Um, so next he says, uh, James saw him. Now, James was Jesus' half-brother. So he grew up with him, grew up in the home with him. He knew Jesus. Um, and he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, Uh, throughout Jesus' entire ministry, as best we can tell, what convinced James is the resurrected Christ, that he saw Jesus um, after he came back, uh, after he rose from the dead. Once again, his brother, okay? His brother probably knew who he was and knew if the individual he saw was really Jesus or not. And he became so convinced that he became a leader in the church. He wrote the book of James that we have in the Bible. And later by all the apostles. So he's just built this mountain of evidence of eyewitness accounts of people that saw Jesus after the resurrection. It's overwhelming. Then verse 8. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. And not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. For we all preach the same message you have already believed. Evidence. Watching a a skeptic talk about, I talked with somebody else, just a little interview deal. And um, he said to this individual, the skeptic did, he said, um, yeah, we don't even know if Jesus was a real person. I mean, the person that's written about in the Bible and all that, we, we don't even know if he really existed. And the other guy was like, well, really? Really? I, I, thought we, I thought that was pretty well determined. Oh, no, no, we don't even know. All we have are these four eyewitness accounts, you know, in the Bible, these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and you know, so we don't really know. And I just thought how interesting that is. Because <laughs> uh, if you know anything about history, especially ancient history, 2,000 years ago, to have four eyewitness accounts that were written down is almost unprecedented. And then for those eyewitness accounts to be meticulously copied and preserved over 2,000 years, almost perfectly, all right? So that what we have today, and we have some ancient manuscripts, right? We can go back and look, very accurate. The core information is 100% the same as it was when it was written. And so, 
to have all that and dismiss it as though it's nothing, it's just laughable. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing in history with as much evidence as the person of Jesus, the work that he did, and the resurrection itself. And so we're not asked to turn off our brain. We're not asked to dismiss and suspend reality. In fact, we have, you have, the same evidence that this church in Corinth had. Aside from we can't go find some of those 500 witnesses, right? And we don't have Peter, you know, to stand in front of us, but we have his account. We have what he saw, what he believed, what he wrote. And it was preserved, it's been preserved for us, again, almost perfectly. And so it's amazing the amount of evidence we have. And so when I talk to people about Jesus and the gospel, it's not that you have to turn off your brain. The question is, will you really consider the evidence? Will you allow it to stand for what it is? Or will you, like this skeptic, dismiss it as though it's nothing? I mean, listen, you could have Jesus himself in front of you. And if you didn't want to believe in him, right, he wouldn't convince you. And so that's the reality. Evidence is there. It's overwhelming. And so many, even today, in our time, have been convinced by the evidence. They've been moved to consider what really requires faith. And that is to trust in Jesus. To forgive my sins. It's not that he existed. It's not that he died. It's not that he rose again. Those takes some faith. We're 2,000 years down the road, but we've got the evidence to support it. The real test, the real faith is will I trust him with my eternity? Will I trust him that he really loves me and that his death was for me and that my sins really can be forgiven? That's where faith, I think, comes to play. Well, this church in Corinth is struggling to continue to hold on to all of the gospel. It's being challenged. They're questioning it. And so Paul next moves into an argument directed at them specifically and their belief in the reality of the resurrection. And so um, he challenges them regarding this issue of their faith with this thought. He says, if Jesus didn't rise then our faith is useless. It has no point if there was no resurrection. Let's keep reading in verse 12. He says, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, once again, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. We're living in a way, we're we're, we're following someone who's phony. We're believing something that didn't happen. How pathetic. Verse 20, but in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came in the world through a man, now, through the re- uh, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ 
will be given new life. But there is an order to the resurrection or to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come. Then he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. The book of First Thessalonians is also written to a church that had, um, they actually believe in the resurrection, but they thought that Jesus had already returned and they missed his second coming and they got left. Um, if you ever watched uh, a series, I think it was called Left Behind series, right? And it's like, same thing. The uh, rapture occurred and, and they got left. Someone got left because they hadn't believed. But um, I, I remember growing up a little afraid of getting left. I think somewhere along the way, Somebody in my family put like a pile of clothes. It looked like, you know, somebody had disappeared out of them. Maybe it was my wife. I don't know, but siblings can be really mean, you know. Try to scare you. Hey, listen, so, uh, so 1 Thessalonians gives a little more information about the second coming and the return of Christ. What's going to happen? And it actually lays out the, the order in this that um, the dead or those who have died already which Paul's going to talk about here in a minute, but, or the next passage, the next section. Those who have died already will, are buried in the ground, right? When Christ returns, they will first be caught up with the Lord. Their souls, their spirits will come. God will bring them back and then there's a bodily resurrection. And then those who are alive will be caught up in the air to meet him. And so that's the order. It gives a little more information. This verse 24 here, talking about Jesus and turning the kingdom over to the Father. Revelation 20 talks about the millennial kingdom, which will come at the end of times where Christ will reign by force, okay, over all the world, all of, over all of humanity. And at the end of that thousand year reign where the devil has been locked up, he can't influence the human race, then um, he will turn over, Jesus will turn over that kingdom to God. Verse 25, for Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yes, there are enemies of God. There are people that don't want to believe in Jesus, and there are people that believe in Jesus and don't want to follow him. There are people that are against everything that God stands for, what he's about, how he wants us to live, his authority, his rule in our lives. There are people that want none of that, right? They don't want to be bound by him. And, and honestly, um, Paul's concern for some of these folks is that they may have fallen into that category, and so he's reminding them of what's going to happen, the order of things, and the supremacy of Jesus. Verse 26, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority, meaning Jesus. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority, right? So there's an order here. He's just, God is in charge. God the Father's in charge. Jesus submits to his authority, but... Verse 28, then when all things are under his authority, meaning the father, the son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? So now he shifts to some evidences. He's arguing with him. He's debating with him. You quit believing in the resurrection. Well, why are there that people, why is it that people get baptized for the dead? You say to yourself, well, wait a minute. We don't get baptized for the dead. 
What's he talking about? Uh, I know there's folks in some churches that do, and they think you've got to be baptized uh, for people who died if they didn't follow God so they can get into heaven. What's going on here? Well, this isn't kind of an endorsement of getting baptized for the dead. Paul's not uh, recommending it. He's not saying this is what we should be doing, okay? He's acknowledging for the sake of argument that some of them and some in the early church were practicing baptism for the dead for some reason. And he's saying, why do they do it if there's no resurrection? So his arguments for the resurrection, don't get confused, but uh, there is something going on here in the early church. Now, it didn't last because we don't do it today. And so you've got to speculate a little bit as to what might have been going on. And it could be, I think a pretty good um, possibility is that uh, there were people that had trusted in Christ, had not been baptized before they died. And so there were Christians getting baptized for them to ensure that they had lived in obedience to Christ. Because baptism is very important. Jesus uh, counseled or commanded us to do it. And so baptism was important. So think about the thief on the cross. He died, he had trusted Christ, but he didn't get baptized. And so maybe this is what was going on. The point is he's trying to argue the reality of the resurrection. And that's what's going on here. Verse 30, and why should we ourselves, meaning Paul says, why should we, or me, right, risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. He goes, my life is under threat every day. Why do that if there's no resurrection? This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus, our Lord, has done in you. I'm facing death. I'm under threat all the time. What's the point if there's no resurrection? Verse 32, another argument. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people in Ephesus who had to go into the Colosseum and fight wild beasts, right, as Christians, the lions, why, are they, why do they do that if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there, is no, if there is no resurrection, now he quotes a saying very popular in Hellenistic Roman culture, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live like everybody else. What are we doing here if there's no resurrection? Verse 33, don't be fooled by those who say such things. There's people influencing you. They're trying to pull you off of your faith. Don't listen to them. For bad company corrupts good character. That's what every parent has said to their children, right? Who you hang out with is gonna influence you. Don't hang out with bad. He's saying the same thing. Don't hang out with people that are telling you there's no resurrection. They're foolish. They're leading you astray. Don't give them, uh, don't give them any breath. Verse 34, think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. This should be what your focus is. Stay focused on the truth. Think about the things that are right and true and then stop sinning and move your life closer and closer towards obedience to Jesus. Then he says this warning, for to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. I don't even think you're a believer, he says. Um, The resurrection is the hinge point of our faith. If there is no resurrection and here they were being convinced that there was no resurrection. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees were made the main leaders in Judaism and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and they were more secular, right? They were more attached to uh, wealth and, and power and prominence and they were uh, connected to Rome and they, uh, they, they were in bed with Rome in a sense. They were in power because of Rome and so 
they quit believing in the supernatural things. This is what happens in our world. And Paul just gives all the evidence. Come on, man. You guys got to hold on to the core of your belief. We live in a world where your faith is challenged, right? Ah, the Bible isn't really the word of God. You know, it was written by people and uh, it's just human ideas put together in a book. Can't really trust it. It's been changed so much over time. You can't even know that what's there is really what was originally there. The people that wrote it lied about who they were, right? So it's, it's, it's all a mirage. The, the attacks on the Bible have been going on really since it was put together. And so this is going to be challenged. What about Jesus? Well, we don't even know if he really existed. Yeah. Um, so many challenges to your faith. And once the Bible falls, once you give up on that, well, yeah, okay, I don't, can't really trust it. Well, then everything else in it is suspect. Did Jesus really exist? You can ask that question. Don't have an answer. Well, is his death on the cross, did it really happen? And if it did, is that really, uh, was that really payment for our sins? Well, I don't know. Well, then you got to ask the questions that are being pushed in our culture. Well, what about living a homosexual lifestyle? Is that okay? What about determining my own gender? What if I can determine that myself? Well, if I don't have any truth source that I'm looking to, that's the word of God, that's coming from God, I don't have any direction. Well, sure, that's fine. Remember the enlightenment, it's about being happy. So doing whatever makes me happy, you can't tell me I can't do it. Just let me do what makes me happy. Leave me alone. It's okay to live together before we get married. How about that one? It's become primary in our culture. Most Christians do it. Almost everybody does it. Um, my, uh, our oldest daughter and her husband, when they were engaged, they lived in Rapid City. And uh, of course, our daughter came from a Christian home, knew the scriptures, believed them, you know, and, and her fiance did not grow up in that kind of environment, didn't really know, um, or wasn't raised uh, with, with what the Bible says and what God says. And so he got saved or trusted Christ in college at the school where my, um, our daughter was going to school. And so here they are uh, growing in their faith and he's growing and then they're dating and his family, um, his mom's side and his dad's side, they're like, why aren't you guys living together? I mean, come on, you save money and you get to know all these benefits you got. And they, they pressured him. And he had to say to his parents and his step, you know, mom and father, no, like we don't believe in that. I mean, what you do if you follow the scriptures is going to be challenged. How about, um, hey, listen, it's not that big deal to go party, get drunk, uh, smoke a little weed, do whatever. It's okay. Not a big deal. What's the harm, right? Um, Hey, if I get angry, lose my temper and cuss and all that, what's the big deal? Not a big deal. How about if I get offended? Somebody does something offend me. Well, I can stay offended. I can be angry at them. I can hold on to that. It's okay for me to chase my own happiness. I should be happy. If I'm in a marriage, I'm not happy. If my life situation, I'm not happy. It's okay. I'll do whatever I need to do to get happy. Listen, this becomes what we live for. And I guarantee that you are being challenged. If you do believe the Bible and hold to it, you're being challenged to let go. Let go. It's not a big deal. And so the question for us is, where are we at with believing God, with trusting him, with holding on to the faith that we were given, that we had when we first believed. And Paul is arguing that with these early Christians who are having the same struggle. The world we live in, the culture we live in, 
I just want to encourage you and guarantee it'll never stop thinking differently about life than what the Bible says. Never. And so if you expect to live in a world where all of those values and beliefs are reinforced and you're not discouraged at following Jesus and doing things the way he says to do it, I mean, it's never going to happen. Now, I take encouragement from the fact that these early Christians faced the same pressures. It kind of makes me feel like I'm not alone in this, right? It's a common experience and that it's going to be difficult to shift my values, my beliefs away from what the world says to what God says. It's never been easy and it's never going to be, but that's where life is found. That's where our salvation lies. And at the core of it is the knowledge and reality that this life is not all there is. Let's read the last bit. Paul next goes into an explanation of how. He says, oh, the resurrection's real. It's going to happen. Jesus rose from the dead. You've got to hold on to this. And by the way, here's how it's going to work. And so he uses uh, an example that we might understand from an agrarian culture. Agriculture is what we do. We understand a lot about it, at least this part of it. He says, here's how it's going to work. Your earthly body is like a seed. Verse 35, he says, but someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question, he says. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. So it goes in the ground a seed, it's got to die, and then it sprouts and grows a totally different um, plant that looks totally different than the seed did. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. One kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. Different kinds of things. A diversity in what God has created. Verse 41, the sun has one kind of glory, the moon and stars each have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are, are uh, buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tells us the first, the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth. While Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What, I'm saying, uh, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment In the blink of an eye, 
when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Our physical bodies will not live forever. There's a resurrection coming. And Jesus rose from the dead as the first of uh, the resurrection of all of humanity. Everyone who dies or has died will rise from the dead. There'll be a transformation from the physical body you have to a spiritual body. And the characteristics of it will be that just as Jesus was recognizable after he rose from the dead, you'll be recognizable. People could touch Jesus. Um, Thomas touched him. They wa- he wanted to feel the wounds just to uh, verify that it was him, right? And so um, you'll be able to, you'll have a physicality to you. But Jesus also uh, transported into a room that was locked and showed up with a bunch of his followers after he rose from the dead. So there's different characteristics to your spiritual body. But the main things to note is that your spiritual body will last forever. It will be in a state that, that Jesus was in after the resurrection. It's intended to spend eternity with God in heaven, in his presence. Death in this life is not the end. Again, we struggle sometimes to live out of the spiritual realities that the Bible teaches us. The resurrection is essential. I wonder if your hope is in this life or if you have a hope for the next. Are you living out of the reality that if you've trusted in Jesus, you're going to spend eternity with him. This life wasn't meant to be everything that we need. And I pray you're not finding all your hope here, but that you remind yourself regularly, each and every day, that you're living for eternity. You're living for all of eternity. This existence is but a small speck in, in what your existence will be. And my prayer is that you have examined the information and the evidence for the resurrection, that you've been challenged to either trust in Christ for salvation, believe that his death was for you and that his death covered your sins. And when you put your faith in him, your trust in him, that your sins are forgiven and you're made right before God. And that's what's going to ensure that when he comes back, you're called to be with him. My prayer for you is that you have an eternal hope and that is the hope that you live out of. It's easy for us to get distracted. Um, would you bow for just a moment? If you're here today and you're thinking, man, I've, 
I've gotten talked out of some of my faith. I've, I've been talked out of some of the things that I know are true, that I used to believe when I was a kid. I used to have confidence in it, but now I don't. I've, I've, been, I've been talked out of I need to repent from that. I need to move back to a strong conviction of the things that I know are true, that are right. That's what I need to live out of. Or maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've never said, you know what? I see the evidence. I acknowledge the evidence. It's there. And so I believe that Jesus was the son of God and that he, he died on a cross and that he paid for my sins and that, yes, he rose from the dead. And maybe you need to put your trust in him today as savior. You need to invite him into your life and you need to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And so I just want to ask in this moment, do you need to repent of something you've been pushed off of? You've allowed yourself to be talked out of your convictions. Or do you need to trust in Christ? If either one of those are true of you, would you just lift up your hand? I'd like to pray for you. God, thank you for calling us to be your children. Thank you for the truth that you've given us. And Father, help us to walk with that conviction, a sense of what is true because we have access to the truth. Give us confidence in it. Help us as we walk through this life and we struggle and there's times where we'll be, we'll question things or we'll be urged to question what you've said. Father, give us that that strength of character and resolve to take the, uh, a little bit of abuse to stand strong in our faith in you. And Father, I just pray if there's anyone here that hasn't trusted in you, that today would be the day where they would put their trust in you and ask you to be their savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.